magic is real. It's contained within an app. Put your feet up and watch Peking Duck appear with just a tap. Magic is pizza tacos. Savoy fish and chips. Shish kebab. And spicy crispy chicken strips. Download the Just Eat app and order food for delivery. Hello and welcome to In The Shower with Taz and Marcus, a bite-sized informative podcast aimed to be listened to in the shower, but you can really listen to it anywhere at all. And we really do mean anywhere. You can listen to this on the International Space Station. You can listen to it while you're waiting for your Snapchats to load. You can listen to it while you're sending pictures on Snapchat to people on the moon in the space station. You can listen to it while you're baking a scrumptious turnover pineapple and cherry cake with what on top? Sprinkles? Yeah, sprinkles. Okay, you listen, you can listen to it anywhere. Um, this is a podcast for the people who say they don't have time to listen to podcasts. We take the mysteries of the world and we debunk them before your very ears. I was going to say eyes, but it's a podcast. You listen to it. So listeners send in questions they've always wondered the answer to, but never quite went as far as looking up. Questions like, is there a correct way to wipe your bum? Why does our hair turn grey? Why do we fall in love? How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could actually chuck wood? And loads, loads more. I suppose you could say... We expand your mind while you wash your behind. And this week is no different. This week's question is really, really good. It comes from a from a chef over in London working in a, in a kick-ass restaurant. Look at that. We have kick-ass chefs listening to our podcast, Taz. Take note, listeners. Um, this is from Mark O'Brien, who works in a, the, the dairy in Clapham, which is an amazing restaurant. He's asked us, why do we typically eat three-course meals? So this week's question is an absolute cracker. It comes from Mark O'Brien, who's a chef in a restaurant called The Dairy in Clapham in London. And he's asked us, why do we typically eat three-course meals? First off, it's amazing that we have another chef listening to our podcast. I love chefs. I love food. Thank you for listening, Mark. I want to go to your restaurant. Uh, we definitely can. Um, if you're in London, go and see Mark in a, in the dairy in Clapham. And another friend of mine works in there, Robin Gill. It's his restaurant. It's awesome. You'll eat good things. Shout out to the dairy in Clapham. Will we eat a three-course meal? I've always wondered, like, where that exactly came from. Like, why do meals traditionally follow the, you know, small savoury, large savoury, and then a sweet treat trend? I know, like, when you think about it, why don't we just eat a larger quantity of one delicious thing? Like cheesecake. Or, like, you know, like a nice slice of hot toast with melty butter. Or lasagna. Or stew, like a really lovely melty stew. Have you ever had a tray bake where the crispy skin on a chicken leg is crackling worthy? Oh, mac and cheese. Burgers. Chocolate mousse. A good Indian. Like, tacos. The naan bread dipped in the curry of the Indian. Squid. Oh, okay, okay, okay. We, we, got it. we, could, we could literally sit here and list a million delicious things but obviously at a base level you know all living things need to eat to survive so when did we kind of take the small step away from just eating to survive and kind of adding a bit of variety to what we chow down on well for a long time like food people enjoyed food but food was a largely functional thing for the vast majority of the population Uh, people would either cook for themselves and their families or get food from street merchants and street vendors 
So unless you were in the noble ruling class kind of anywhere, you would eat to go to work and to have energy to sustain you during the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you look at a lot of foods from around the world, everything from like curries to ramen to stews to everything, they were typically stuff that went into one pot in the morning and were served in the evening. That's across the board. All of that seemed to have changed with one man um, who went by the nickname Ziryab in medieval Iraq. Ziryab? Yeah, Ziryab. What a legend. How could one man change the game so much? My hero. Um, he was a fairly unbelievable guy. Like, honestly, we've researched a lot of things in this podcast, and this guy was really, really cool. Um, his full name was Abu Il-Hassan Ali Nafi. I'm definitely pronouncing that wrong. <laughs> if, uh, if you have any um, advice on how to pronounce that, shoot us a message. Um, but he was an early polymath from Mosul in Iraq. Which is just another word for mega genius. Yeah, so basically a polymath is somebody who is really good at loads and loads of stuff. So this dude, at the time, first and foremost, was one of the most respected musicians of the entire kind of the entire medieval era. Um, he's known as the father of classic Spanish classic, or he's known as the father of Spanish classical music, <gasps> and was known worldwide as an incredible. Uh, he was known worldwide as an incredible musician. Um, people think that he actually went to Spain in the first place because. He became better than his teacher, who was the royal court musician in Iraq, and his teacher banished him out of offense oh my because God. he upstaged him. Yeah, that's nuts. absolutely nuts. But not only was he a musician, he was a teacher and a poet, and he had extensive knowledge of everything from like astronomy, beauty, fashion, geography, and culinary arts. And by all accounts, he was just an absolute boy. He had like eight sons, changed the way people dressed, and everything. He was cool. Um, so, yeah, he kind of reset a ton of the standards for the way Nobility did things in where he finally settled down, which was Al-Andalus, which later became Andalusia in Spain. Um, so if you think about it, he was kind of like a medieval Iraqi influencer. Do you reckon he had a 20% discount code for the local cloth vendor and his overage of makeup palettes? <laughs> Hashtag spawn. <laughs> well, funnily enough, this, this guy's actually thought to have been the first guy to set up beauty parlours. No way. Yeah, set up beauty parlours for the, the Cordoban elite. Uh, so the elite from Cordoba at the time, and uh, as well as inventing early forms of toothpaste and setting new hygiene standards, which spread all through medieval Europe. So how have I not heard of this guy? This guy I'm, seems like he has invented the whole world. Well, where does his his kind of link with food come into it then? Well, um, as I mentioned before, food at the time was either a grab and go kind of affair for the workers, um, or a huge opulent feast for the wealthy. Where. It was just as much about showing how powerful you were through sheer quantity as they were about the actual quality of the food. Okay. But as with everything, Zuryab did things a little differently. Why would he want to change a giant opulent banquet where you could be eating things like swan and suckling pig and rabbit? And did you see the mental banquet cakes they had on the Great British Bake Off? I did. And that's how <laughs> like, but sometimes you don't want that. So Zuryab, Zuryab insisted, um, and he. Records show that he was the first person ever to insist that he'd have a three-course meal, just as his standard meal. So it wasn't the one-course eating for sustenance, and it wasn't the giant banquet. Okay. He always wanted the three-course meal, which started with the soup, followed by a main course, and then a dessert. He also revolutionized the setting of the table, insisting that there was a leather tablecloth used and insisting that there was crystal goblets, which he found more efficient than metal. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. It wasn't long that through his influence, this became the norm on the Iberian Peninsula. So basically Spain and Portugal. And that idea spread even further. 
So, okay, we have the beginnings of the three-course meal. They can be tracked down to this absolute hyper-legend Ziryab, who I want to be my new best friend, and it all kind of took place in medieval Iraq. But I'm curious about the order. So as, as Mark asked in the question, why do we have a small savoury followed by a large savoury and then a sweet? There has to be some kind of reasoning for that. Yeah, and it's funny. If you apply any kind of logic to the tradition of the order in which we eat a three-course meal, things can get a little confusing. Even speaking about this, there's a psychologist called Ben Hayden um, literally said, it's a puzzle because models of human decision-making about how rewards are distributed in time emphasize our fundamental impatience as humans. We want our rewards as soon as possible. So given a salad, an entree, and some chocolate cake, all standard psychological and economic models predict that you'll eat the cake first, then the entree, and the salad last. But with the given tradition, we always eat the cake last. Exactly. Um, so Google and general kind of internet research didn't actually turn up too much info on this. So I had to look a little deeper into the history of the dessert and why it traditionally is the closing stroke of any meal. Go on then, sweeten us up, Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, uh, much like we found out in another episode that you know pineapples were a big balls-out show of wealth, we can trace back final course desserts to around the 16th and 17th century, where among the aristocracy, dinners were a serious affair, and you know they'd start early and finish very, very late. Like they were a long haul kind of thing, and they were kind of a way to impress their friends and whatnot. Exactly, yeah. the goal was to impress. Um, aside from you know stuffing 14 birds into one another to create some kind of monstrous super bird, <laughs> or paying the equivalent of literally thousands of euro to have a pineapple sit on a pedestal in the middle of your dining table. The very last thing you'd ever want is for anyone to leave hungry or without feeling that they'd been taken care of. Okay. And since refined sugars were expensive and hard to come by, they were often given to people at the end of a meal to push them over the edge towards complete satisfaction. So they could just roll them all home after they'd eaten nonstop for like seven hours. Yeah, and actually, that was kind of the idea. The dessert would, uh, would often be prepared well in advance and could be heated up or served very easily so that it could just be brought out at the end of the meal and the staff could already be cleaning the kitchen and everything like that. Oh, wow. Um, and even the word dessert comes from the French desservir, which is the verb to clear the table. Um, it was the final blow that would push people over the edge and conclude a meal in grand old style. That's amazing. So mm-hmm. the, the whole thought of dessert is to kind of get people away. Exactly. That's yeah. amazing, because like, even if you think of it, if you go out to a restaurant and you don't have dessert, mm-hmm. often you're sitting there, you might have a drink or two and sit there yep. for a long time and chat. Whereas if you have a dessert, I'm always like, Meh, time mm-hmm. to go home and well, be a couch potato. That's exactly it. It's, um, it. it's just, it's always traditionally been, you know, kind of the signature at the end of the meal. I don't know about you, but after that, I am ready for literally 20 courses right now, as many desserts as possible. I'm absolutely starving. Um, But... Okay. We have to have some meal facts of first. Of course we do. Okay, so these are kind of meal and food facts. Um, so Nutella... The most glorious substance in the world. Which was originally known as pasta guanduya. There you go, how's that for Italian Ooh. pronunciation? Was created in Italy when hazelnuts were used to stretch out rationed chocolate during <gasps> World War II. Wow. The earliest version was a foil-wrapped loaf that could be sliced and served on a piece of bread. <sighs> Imagine a loaf of Nutella. Oh my God, that sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have loaves of Nutella anymore? We can do. We can get some uh, some pasta de Goyanduya. Oh, oh wow, that sounds like a good time. Um, the world's largest ever shrimp cocktail used 488 kilos of shrimp. 
Oh, wow. 50 litres of ketchup <gasps> and a whole bunch of other ridiculous amounts of stuff and it was served in an almost two metre high cocktail glass. That's outrageous. Mm-hmm. Think of how small a little shrimp is. I know. Madness. Okay, last one. Oxfam did a global study to find out the world's favourite meal. <gasps> Do you want to take a guess? Um, World's favourite meal. So think of something that is eaten all over the world. I feel like soup. No. Okay. Officially, on a study done in 2007, Oxfam found that the world's favourite meal, and this is just for one course, not three, is actually pasta. Hmm. Fair enough. Pasta is absolutely delicious. So there you have it, Mark O'Brien and all of the team in the dairy in Clapham. Um, I hope that made a little bit of sense and kind of clarified why, as a uh, as a community, we've we've kind of centered around the three course meal and made a bit of a tradition of it. Yeah, shout out to Ziriab as well. What an absolute god! Yeah, I think you know what if. Uh, if you're still kind of going with the hashtag New Year, New Me thing, I think we should bring back the hashtag Be More Like Zeria. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much for listening to that episode. As always, we've got a massive bank of episodes that you can binge listen to at your leisure. We've got questions from far stretching corners of the globe on every topic that you can imagine. So check them out and please recommend them to your friends if you enjoy them. Guaranteed, if you listen to all of them, the conversation you'll be able to strike up during your next three or 20 course meal will be better than it was before. If you have a question that you would like Marcus and I to debunk, there's a few ways you can send it in to us. First off, you can do it on social media. You can get us on Facebook. All you have to do is search In The Share With Taz and Marcus. Or if you're a Twitter kind of person, you can get us at In The Share Pod. If you'd rather do it the old-fashioned way and send us in a question or a comment or a nice letter to uh, to our email, we're in the shower podcast at gmail.com. We we I, I kind of want someone to write us a letter now. I kind of I want people to 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 give us their love. We want love. We want love. But if you want to write us a letter, just send it to the Headstuff Podcast Network. Google it and get the address and send it to us. That That'd would be, be cool. magical. That'd be really cool. Speaking of the Headstuff Podcast Network, thanks to Paddy and Alan and all the guys here for make the magic at Headstuff happen. We couldn't do it without you. Um, a huge, huge thank you to Florence Robinson, our wonderful designer, who came up with their little showery cartoon logo. Um, we love you, Flo. You're great. And a final thank you goes to Dave Gertzman for our lovely music that goes something like this. One, two, three, four. Next week's question. Next week's question is a really, really, really interesting one. And it was asked by me. I'm really interested in time and I was kind of thinking about it and I was wondering... Why do we have leap years? That episode is going to be out next Monday in time for your morning shower. But in the meantime, keep scrubbing! This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.